It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. This story is an absolute microcosm of everything that is wrong with the media and with social media. It spread like wildfire across the country, probably around the world. Something that, upon closer inspection, turns out to be complete BS. How many times have we been through that? It involves the Colorado Rockies baseball team. And somebody was overheard, a fan on a broadcast uh, during the game just this past Sunday, yelling what was perceived to be, was reported as a racial slur. The outfielder for the Marlins, Miami Marlins, Lewis Brinson was at the plate. He's black. This fan was accused of yelling the N-word. Everybody went crazy. The Rockies opened an investigation. The play-by-play guy apologized. The Rockies said they have zero tolerance for any form of uh, racism. And then it turns out that this fan who set off this, you know, absolute wave of outrage was actually yelling Dinger. Dinger is the team's purple dinosaur mascot who was walking through the crowd. So this whole racial incident was completely fabricated. So rather than you know, wait for the facts. You know, everybody jumps on it and everybody else jumps on it and then it gets retweeted and re-Facebooked and all that. And nothing happened, except I don't know why there's a purple dinosaur named Dinger, but we'll leave that for another time. Um, The Olympics uh, ratings are in. Wowza. Down 42% from the 2016 Olympics in Rio. Uh, No, the U.S. won the most medals, and obviously there was some great moments, but a lot of people didn't watch. During prime time, which is when the network makes its money, the network being NBC, which which pays billions for the rights through 2032, 15.5 million people watched over the 17 days. That's pretty good. Look, if you have a sitcom, that's a really nice number, but it's not what the Olympics used to be, to say the least, to the point where the network now has to issue to advertisers what are called make goods. You know, in other words, refund some of their money because they're promised a certain audience, and if NBC doesn't deliver that audience, and this is true for all kinds of events, not just uh, sports, the companies want their money back. Now, the chairman of NBC Sports Pete Bavacqua is quoted by the Wall Street Journal as saying, we look at the numbers in general and the impact that COVID has had on sports, and that part obviously is true, no fans in the stands. We were prepared for these numbers. And he ends up saying, oh, we're really going to make money because we have, you know, streaming and all that. Very profitable for NBC. Yeah, okay, good luck with that. Uh, Axios points out that there are longer-term issues here. Uh, that raised questions about, you know, the days, of, at least when people like me grew up, where it was a big television event, everybody watched, and there's a monster number because there's so many now uh, choices in the digital age. More than 80% of American TV households, I did not know this, had at least one internet-connected device, which means, you know, a TV device, which means that you can watch Netflix or Amazon Prime or Hulu and on and on and on. Um And also, there's no question that the social justice protest by some athletes at the Games um, soured some viewers on this who, you know, want to see the Olympics as, you know, what the original purpose of sport or global competition and uh, not, you know, the same old political arguments. Though, you know, I always say this, I, I don't object to the right of any athlete to speak his or her mind. 
But I do think it's different when you're representing the United States of America overseas in Tokyo as opposed to, um, you know, if you're a player in the NBA or the NFL or something like that. Younger people following uh, Olympics on places like TikTok. Olympics ratings have been declining for years. Uh, and there's one other thing, and I, NBC, everyone I talked to about the Olympics, and I had sort of a passing interest. I wanted to watch Katie Ledecky, uh, the great swimming champion. I wanted to watch Simone Biles. Um, the way NBC did this, you could not find out when things were on. So, you know, they would have a, um, like, you know, a graphic up that would say, tonight, you know, swimming and track and field, whatever it was. And then you tune in, and it'd be badminton for an hour. You can never get the exact time. Some of it was kicked over to the Peacock uh, online network, and and you just couldn't you couldn't view it as appointment television. That plus the the, the thirteen hour time difference with the East Coast really made it frustrating. All right, number one, uh, I'm going to give you the numbers again. I've been doing this since June. What was once eight or ten or fifteen thousand new coronavirus cases a day. And as I've ticked through the 30,000 and the 50,000 and the 70,000, the average, as of yesterday, 124,000 new cases, mostly the Delta variant. And this is why in certain parts of the country, particularly these low vaccinated states or counties, you have uh, almost a sense of deja vu. We're hearing about there aren't enough ICU beds and hospitalization rates and all of that. Are things as bad as they were during the peak of the pandemic? No, when it reached about 200 or even 250,000 cases a day. But 124,000 new cases when we have vaccines and we thought we were on the verge of beating this thing is insane. It is absolutely insane. Now, Anthony Fauci was on Morning Joe today and he was asked about or came up in the conversation why hasn't the Food and Drug Administration given final approval as opposed to emergency approval to these vaccines? And he was kind of dismissive. He said, look, the FDA has its own processes. He says, this is a technicality. It's as if it was finally approved. Well, you better hope so because, you know, even with all the people refusing to get the shots, uh, we still have, what, 160 million Americans who have gotten these vaccines based on the FDA's assurance that it's safe. And so it is driving me nuts that without infringing on the science, because this just seems to me to be a classic bureaucratic delay, that the White House isn't putting more pressure on the FDA to deliver the final approval. It's still supposed to be, oh, it'll be by September or the fall, whatever. What could possibly be taking so long? It is a technicality because every day the President of the United States gets up there and says, get the vaccine based on assurances from the FDA and, secondarily, the CDC. Uh, Meanwhile, you have this big political battle now, particularly in Florida and Texas. Some of that is the media love to go after Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott, the governors. Uh, But there are battles within those states uh, because of the governors telling all of the cities and counties and and, um, communities within their states that they can't impose a mask mandate, that they can't impose a vaccine mandate. So in Texas, for example, uh, as of today, the Dallas Public School District will require everyone on school property, including students, employees, and visitors, to wear masks. This is after Governor Abbott said, you're not allowed to do that. And he says it's a matter of personal responsibility. In Florida, uh, Ron DeSantis is now threatening to withhold the salaries 
of local superintendents and school board members, whether he actually does that, I don't know, uh, who go against his executive order that there can't be a mask mandate or a vaccination mandate. And obviously this is coming uh, to the front burner because even though we're only into the middle of August, you know, schools are either opening in some areas or starting to open in the next few weeks. And this is a huge problem. I, mean, I don't want my kid going to school wearing a mask all day, but I understand the dilemma, especially if, given the fact that kids under 12 cannot legally get the vaccine these days. So according to the Wall Street Journal, 43% of the intensive care beds in the state of Florida are filled with coronavirus patients. Now, some of the counties are defying the governor's order, although they may have a certain exceptions, like they could allow certain students to opt out. Broward County, one of the biggest counties in Florida, the school district there voting last month to require students to wear masks, now says, well, it's reconsidering. Uh, it's all going to end up being decided by judges. Lawsuits have been filed against the DeSantis order in Florida. Um, the top uh, elected official in Dallas County sued Governor Abbott, uh, in Texas last night. And in Florida, you have the superintendent of public schools in Alachua County. I hope I'm not mispronouncing that. Uh, she has an op-ed in the Washington Post today. She was also on MSNBC saying she's not going along with this. She says the governor, DeSantis, recently threatened to withhold funds from school districts that implement certain safety measures, particularly masking. We don't have the luxury of ignoring the current crisis to score political points. Carly Simon goes on to say, we've had more cases reported in the past two weeks than in the previous five months combined. Tragically, two of our employees died from COVID-related complications just over a week ago. Many others are quarantined and unable to work, and the numbers keep rising. If these trends continue, we may not have the workforce we need to operate our schools safely. So this is coming uh, to a head. And some of these people are saying as a matter of conscience, as a matter of safety, I've got people dying here. I'm not going along with the governor. And I guess it'll be tested in the courts, whether both of these governors and elsewhere in the country have the authority not just to issue these rules or executive orders for their states, but have the authority to tell cities, county executives, local school boards that they can't do what's in their best judgment for the well-being of their students. All right, number two, today is the day. The infrastructure bill is actually going to pass the Senate. The skids are grease and all these political, or I should say procedural votes. Uh, 19 Republican senators have gone along. And finally, all that has been cleared away. And today will be the day. Now, first of all, I have to say I'm surprised that this ultimately happened. Because I said again and again and again, ultimately it would fall apart at the end. It fell apart about 15 times. Uh, the mere fact that the Senate is going to do this is unquestionably a victory for President Biden because he campaigned on the idea that the two parties could work together. He campaigned on the idea of bipartisanship. Now, there's still some chance it could fall apart because in liberals in the House are unhappy with this compromised trillion-dollar bill, which is actually $550 billion in new spending. Um but I think also the only reason this is happening is Mitch McConnell. And I talked last week about how he deserves credit. And suddenly the press is respecting him because he's been speaking out on the need to get vaccines. And he basically, you know, if he was against this, it would be very difficult for 19 Republican senators or 18 others, including Mitch, 
uh, to go along with this compromise. Now, what's fascinating here is, as soon as this bill is passed, Chuck Schumer is going to then push the Senate to take up the $3.5 trillion bill that is expected to pass only with Democratic votes, 50 Democratic votes, Kamala Harris breaking the tie, uh, which it goes far beyond infrastructure to all kinds of social programs, housing, climate change, you name it. Now, Washington Post has an interesting take here, saying Senate Republicans are about to do something that would have seemed largely unthinkable over the past four years, provide the votes to pass a major spending bill spearheaded by Democrats. Uh, now, uh, the Post points out, and I talked about this at some length yesterday, Donald Trump is against this. Donald Trump has been sending out, I will not endorse or I may withhold my endorsement to any Republican who votes for this. But you look into history, and um, Trump never actually produced a detailed bill, but he did have the idea of a trillion and a half dollar infrastructure bill that never even got to a vote in committee. Uh, so he wasn't able to pass it, but he doesn't like this version. Uh, this Washington Post analysis piece says Trump case, Trump's case against the bill is essentially 100% political, warning that Republicans are giving Biden a bipartisan win without objecting to the particulars. It will be used against the Republican Party in the upcoming elections in 2022 and 2024, says Trump. Although I would say, you know, one of the reasons McConnell wants this for his perhaps endangered members in swing states is they can go back and say, look, you know, I oppose this, this and this uh, that Biden was pushing. But I thought that this was in the best interest of our state and the city of such and such to get these roads and bridges and waterways um, built, upgraded, upgraded. I think the GOP can share the credit, and Biden wants that. That's the essence of bipartisanship. Here's Republican Senator Bill Cassidy of Louisiana uh, saying, I will point out, he said this on CNN, that President Trump proposed a $1.5 trillion package, which most Republicans were all for, and only 5% of it was paid for. This bill, though it's got all these accounting gimmicks, at least purports to pay for more than 5%. We have $550 billion in new spending, uh, says Cassidy, of which we can reasonably say is paid for, I would argue with that, but certainly one half by the CBO score, the Congressional Budget Office. Uh, and now folks are saying, oh, can't vote for that. So he's pointing out, which is so often the case on Capitol sheer hypocrisy. When Trump was for it, a lot of Republicans were for it. Trump's against it. Democrats are for it. It might give Biden uh, something to brag about. All of a sudden, no, can't possibly do this. But... Here's a piece in National Review by Rich Lowry. Uh, and obviously conservatives who think that even the trillion-dollar bill is way too expensive are really starting to speak up now. They were quiet for a while because the guy was going to pass, right? Why waste the ink and the energy on it? Uh, Lowry says now, you know, a trillion-dollar spending bill is a trifle barely worth arguing over. It's the stuff of bipartisan consensus when it's actually one of the largest non-emergency spending bills of the last 50 years. Well, you know, when you compare it to three and a half trillion that Biden wants and the Democrats want for this other bill, which I'm sure will get knocked down somewhat, but still it's going to be gargantuan. Um, then you say, ah, a trillion dollars, you know, it becomes funny money in Washington terms. Um, what Lowry says is that Republicans will have much less influence and perhaps none on the next spate of spending, the so-called soft infrastructure, a.k.a. a wish list of progressive social programs. 
um, the sheer numbers are draw dropping. And I've talked about this again and again because I'm one of like, you know, 14 people in the country that still cares about all the red ink, all the borrowing that is taking place. Um, and liberals used to care about this. Well, they do when Republicans are in the White House and when Democrats in the White House, Republicans care about it. So when you add up the $1.9 trillion in COVID relief that passed under Biden, Biden wants to spend, you know this number, nearly $6 trillion on three different bills within months of each other. In 2019, the entire federal budget was $4.4 trillion. This will add to extraordinary levels of red ink. And there's just, there's, I mean, the math is the math. You can't get around it. You can say, oh, it doesn't matter. You can come up with this, you know, rosy scenario. Well, it'll pay for itself because the economy will get such a great boost, so forth. But meanwhile, and I've talked about this comparison before, the White House's own projection is that U.S. debt, remember, this is all borrowed, bondholders, and have to be repaid with interest. This year, will reach 109% of gross domestic product, higher than the end of World War II. We were basically fighting for the survival of the American way of life. This will add, for, you know, there will be a universal pre-K, tuition-free community college, family medical leave, expanding Obamacare, expanding Medicare. A big nod, says Lowry, to the Green New Deal and a lot of clean energy initiatives. It's a sign of the insane ambition, he says, of Biden's Democrats that they hope to include a sweeping amnesty for illegal immigrants in the bill. But that's likely to be struck down by the Senate parliamentarian. So we can argue about that after this bill passes, assuming it doesn't end up getting torpedoed in the Democratic House. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. Number three. Uh, there's not a lot of hard news developments on the Andrew Cuomo situation, except that the Democratic Speaker of the State Assembly, Carl Hasty, one-time ally of the governor, is signaling that the that chamber will be ready to go on impeachment in just a few weeks. So this notion that it's just going to drag on forever, and meanwhile Cuomo will be able to hang on, I don't think is going to stand up to reality, given the way the wheels are turning in Albany. I have a column today on Fox about not just the latest developments, some of which we talked about on the podcast yesterday, um, the executive assistant number one going public, Brittany Camasso, uh, about um, you know what she says was being groped by the governor on two different occasions. Uh, you also have the governor's top aide, Melissa DeRosa, resigning under great pressure. Um, but I talk about just, and, and, and the media are complicit in this, and social media certainly are, the way in which too many people in politics, Republicans if you're on the right, Democrats if you're on the left, get built up into these larger-than-life figures, into these superheroes, these superhumans, when they're actually all flawed human beings. You know, uh, most politicians, in my view, regardless of political party or political persuasion, will prevaricate, will exaggerate, will mislead when necessary, will flip-flop when necessary, they engage in situation morality. But, you know, I mean, Donald Trump today has a huge following among Republicans, even after January 6th and all that has happened. Um, that was true of Andrew Cuomo last year. In fact, I talk about this song parody, uh, which is still very funny, by a, a guy named Randy Rainbow, 
who did who declared himself a Cuomo sexual and did this whole song about Andy and how much he loved him at the time when Cuomo was doing those briefings and the media were just absolutely lionizing him. And it was also true, you know, when Bill Clinton was president, despite the scandals, despite the impeachment, you know, most liberals and liberal media loved him. I mean, mo- some of the liberal media broke with him after Monica Lewinsky and Paula Jones and all of that. Uh, Barack Obama in 2008. And inevitably, people who put their faith in these kinds of politicians are going to be disappointed because they are human beings. Anyway, Lindsay Boylan was the first accuser, and she did it by writing a long, this is, you know, a year ago, almost a year ago, I should say, a long um, piece on the website Medium about how she'd been harassed by the governor. And I remember saying this should be covered, and I covered it. But I said she should do an interview. She should subject herself to a reporter's questions, which she ultimately did much later, rather than just putting out this piece. And she was running for Manhattan Borough President at the time, so she, there were reasons to think this was political. Well, she has another piece today on Medium. Because remember, we now know, not only presumably that what Lindsey Boylan said was true, since the state AG found 11 women were harassed by Governor Cuomo, but that there was a campaign of retaliation against her, led by Melissa Rosa, the Rosa, the woman who has just resigned as Cuomo's number one aide. Lindsay Boylan writes, I am personally devastated by the accounts of the governor's widespread harassment, the scope of the retaliation campaign he waged against me, and the efforts by his minions to protect him at all costs. Uh, she says, this is all very painful. The universal refrain of congratulations for telling our truth, she says, because these women were brave. They came forward at a time when they knew it might not be believed. Does it bring much comfort? In some ways, it simply confirms that women are believed only when an investigative report is made public and the evidence is overwhelming. It's a shame, she says, that the institutions we uphold as our protectors and advocates, government, political leaders, the media, victims and women's rights organizations still don't believe us when a powerful man is involved. It's not our truth. It's the truth. And then she adds, I often think about how close I came to being viewed as the villain of this story. The Attorney General's report documented how the governor, his inner circle, and people at the highest levels of corporate and nonprofit power, that is true, some people have had to resign over this, went to great lengths to discredit me. They are still trying. The governor's office continues to use official government channels funded by taxpayers to release statements and stage press conferences to spread lies about me and attempt to taint me and other survivors. Lindsay Boylan says she will sue Cuomo and others who tried to smear her. All right, number four, uh, ruling by a federal judge yesterday is getting some attention. This is in the, some of these uh, trials of the January 6th defendants. This federal judge, Chief U.S. District Judge Beryl Howell in Washington, questioned why the Capitol riot defenders so far have been asked only to pay a million and a half dollars in restitution, while American taxpayers are paying more than $500 million to cover the costs of the Capitol riot of the January 6th attack by a pro-Trump mob. Um, Judge Howell said this in a plea hearing for a Colorado Springs man who admitted to one of four nonviolent misdemeanor counts of picketing the U.S. Capitol. You know, not everybody was picking up weapons and beating up police, but a lot of them obviously breached the security at the Capitol, and that's against the law. So according to this Washington Post account, Howell had already asked in another defendant's plea hearing whether no prison misdemeanor plea deals being offered by the government are too lenient 
for individuals involved in, quote, terrorizing members of Congress. And she asked whether the government has any concern about deterrence. In other words, how are you setting an example for future people who might be interested in these kinds of attacks if people just get off by paying a fine? So she asked the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C., why it was seeking to require only $2,000 in each felony case and $500 in each misdemeanor case. Here's a quote from Judge uh, Howell. I'm accustomed to the government being fairly aggressive in terms of fraud when there have been damages that accrue from a criminal act for the restitution amount. Where we have Congress acting, appropriating all this money due directly to the events of January 6th, I have found the damage amount of less than $1.5 million dollars when all of us American taxpayers are about to foot the bill for close to half a trillion dollars, a little bit surprising. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who agree with her. Uh, and, you know, look, every case is different. I'm not saying everybody should be sent to jail. Obviously, the people who engaged in violence are more serious crimes than just a misdemeanor, in my view, deserve jail time. Um, but it's true, if you get off with a $500 slap on the wrist, it really does raise a question about deterrence, given the magnitude of this crime. And so that's why these prosecutions continue to get a lot of attention. Now, number five, um, I, I don't want to treat it too lightly, but I do find it amusing. Uh, it, this is as if there needs to be a special prosecutor or a federal investigation to look into the guy who may well become the next host of Jeopardy, <laughs> succeeding the late Alex Trebek. Now, there already is, you know, it's, it's, called, it's been called pulling a Dick Cheney because the guy who looks like he's got the job locked up, Mike Richards, is the longtime producer of Jeopardy, and he was involved in the search. And, you know, for ratings, they trotted out all these people, all these celebrities went and did it, you know, Anderson Cooper, Katie Couric, uh, I lost track of how many how many people uh, got the tryouts, and you know some received better reviews than others. Uh, and now it looks like the guy who did the search, remember Dick Cheney was involved in the 2000 vice presidential search for George Bush, looks like he's going to get the job. Um, but he is now having to address uh, allegations of past discrimination lawsuits from his previous job at The Price is Right. So he put out a memo to the current Jeopardy staff in order to clarify what was going on. So he's on the defensive race. So it's like an oppo campaign is being run against him. Now, I'm not saying this shouldn't be looked into. Some of it's serious stuff. Um, so there were two lawsuits from the time when he was a producer at The Price is Right. Um, one of them, they were both in 2010. So he said in this email, these do not reflect my character. One suit is from a model on The Price is Right, Brandy Cochran. She claimed that she was fired after becoming pregnant. Uh, while Mike Richards was not a defendant in that suit, which was against CBS and the program, the show's former producer was accused in the suit of treating the model differently after she announced her pregnancy. Richards says, I want you all to know the way in which my comments and actions have been characterized in these complaints does not reflect the reality of who I am or how we work together at The Price is Right. I know firsthand how special it is to be a parent. It's the most important thing in the world to me. I would not say anything to disrespect anyone's pregnancy and have always supported my colleagues on their parenting journeys. So, however, uh, the story I'm looking at here notes, 
the a California appeals court did note that there was evidence that Richards harbored pregnancy-based animus. In particular, um, this is according to uh, The Hollywood Reporter, there was a holiday party in 2008 when he bemoaned the effect of Cochran's pregnancy on staffing, claiming, uh, he said, go figure, I fire five models, what are the odds one of the ones I keep gets pregnant? That seems like not a really acceptable thing to say. Cochran's lawsuit claims she was unable to return as a model following her maternity leave. According to uh, a 2011 report in the LA Times, another model, Lanisha Cole, who alleged sexual harassment and wrongful termination by the Price is Right producers, accused Richard, in particular, Mike Richard, of mistreating her. Specifically, Richards, according to her lawsuit, refused to speak with her about anything work-related or not under any circumstance. And finally, Mike Richards says about the search for a new Jeopardy host, he says while he was asked to be Alex Trebek's permanent replacement, no final decisions have been made. Well, that's a little bit like nothing to see here. Yeah, he's got the job locked up. And look, I didn't see his tryout. A lot of people said he was a nice on-air manner. Obviously, he knows the game inside and out, very smooth. You would think, I don't know, it's an interesting question. Uh, you would think that the Jeopardy, which is such a storied franchise, would want to get somebody who was, if not a huge celebrity, somebody who was at least a bit of a household name or a bold-faced name to step in and take the job. You know, when Alex Trebek first started Jeopardy, I mean, he wasn't a huge international celebrity. He became that through the game. But, or is it better to have somebody who is really, really good at it, maybe doesn't have another job, because a lot of these celebs look like they might do it on the side while working at networks and so forth. Um... And somebody maybe who makes it less about him and more about the contestants and then kind of grows into the job. I don't know the answer to that. I watched Jeopardy! as a kid growing up. I mean, it's always been a really cool show. The answer is Mike Richards. The question is, who is the next host of Jeopardy? Except Mike Richards says, not so fast. But I, I just love that he, he's got a, like, there's a campaign against him. Uh, people are digging through these old lawsuits and he's got to defend himself and maybe he needs his own PR spokesman. It's just, you know, when he's getting vetted as if he were nominated to be the next Secretary of State, not the host of Jeopardy. But these, alas, are the times that we live in. I uh, always appreciate your listening. Uh, always fun to cover the waterfront with all of you. You can subscribe on your Amazon device or on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and we'll see you tomorrow with more Buzzbeat. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.